Revelation chapter 4, a great portion of scripture. I love chapters 4 and 5 as uh, it is just, it's the heavenly scene. I really do believe over the next number of weeks as we take our time just to kind of work through this beautiful picture, and I'm not talking about picture in like an allegorical, metaphysical, or allegorical, or metaphorical sense. We're talking about reality here, um, but it is a vision. It is a picture. These are the things that John sees, and they are absolutely amazing. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump right into this. God, thank you. Father, we're thankful that we're able to gather tonight together and to worship you, and, and we did experience your presence in that time of worship. Thank you for drawing us close. God, I want to thank you for the hearts in this room that have a desire to draw near to you. And truly, God, we've come tonight because we want more of you. Father, we not only want a greater devotion, but we want a deeper experience. We want continued revelation. There's, we're never going to get to the bottom of you. You are infinitely beautiful. And Lord, it's, it is a worthwhile endeavor for all of our lives to discover these beauties on a daily basis. As we have this extraordinary picture of heaven, I pray, God, that you would truly enlighten our eyes of understanding, that you would develop an anticipation within us for what is coming, that you would help us to see that we're part of such a, a bigger story, a bigger narrative. And in all of that, our hearts would be comforted tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I have a joke to start with tonight. Why do shoemakers go to heaven? Because they have good souls. You guys know that's theologically incorrect, right? I mean, that's, that's not the soteriology that we believe in. Uh, but just speaking of heaven, you know, there is a, a beautiful picture of heaven, like I said, in chapters 4 and 5. Uh, and it is healthy for our hearts to consider heaven. You know, it's, it's healthy for our hearts. You know, I think sometimes we think, man, I wonder what it's going to be like. And, you, you know, there are all of these cultural ideas maybe that we've gleaned through art or uh, through writing, something maybe like Milton's uh, Paradise Lost or, you know, different forms of media. But the reality is we have to go no further than the, than the scriptures. And, you know, the, the truth is in that reality that it's not even that we have a comprehensive uh, view of heaven. In fact, in fact, we, we get a, just a, a slice, we get a sliver, we get a small picture. Uh, the picture that we get is amazing, like the things that you're going to see tonight in the scriptures, I really do believe are going to bless your heart. And there are a lot of takeaways for us this evening. But I wonder why sometimes, I wonder why God uh, did not give us a, a fuller picture of heaven. And, you know, I think part of Part of the reason why is it just stirs that anticipation, right? The, the unknown, the mystery of it um, really should be causing our heart to beat for that coming day when we will be with the Lord in heaven. And what a glorious thing that will be. <clears throat> you know, there are those who say uh, to people, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. But the truth is this, you can't be of any earthly good until you're heavenly minded, and, and there, are, there are so many benefits to considering heaven. You know, in fact, Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And you know, when Paul said that, of course, he's not saying, hey, you know, think about heaven so much that you don't fulfill the responsibilities that you have on earth. He definitely did not mean that. 
But when we consider heaven, you know, there's, there's so much that happens in our life. First of all, we come into contact with this, this amazing God and this extraordinary self-disclosure of where He, of course, God is omnipresent, no doubt, but where His throne is, where His presence dwells. And just, you know, I mean, to post on social media pictures of your home, I mean, that, there's, there's, a, there's a risk in that. And you have to really want people to know what your home looks like, your, your sanctuary, your place of peace. You would really want to have to, you know, want them to know what it looks like to do that. And, and the truth is, is, God wants you to know. God wants you to know how beautiful uh, His presence is all around the throne. Not only that, I think that, I think that it helps us to remember that there's a, a bigger story that we're a part of. You know, there is a, this beautiful cosmological narrative that's been written by God. And I think, you know, it's easy for us because God is so great and God is so infinite and big. You know, it's easy to become disconnected from Him because, you know, He's all that and, well, we're just this. But He beckons us. He invites us. We're going to see tonight that the door to heaven is open. And I think, I think symbolically that, that says something. He, he does invite us. And, you know, when we set our mind on things above... It lifts us out of, you know, the, the seclusion, this the little myopic view that we have of our lives that can be so draining with respect to emotional and physical energy. It can be so purposelessness. <laughs> That's a long word. It can be so without purpose. I, I'm thinking of Elmer Fudd right now. No, no purpose. You know, sometimes we can feel like that, like, what am I really doing? What am I here for? You know, what is real meaning and purpose in my life? And, and you know, when we think about heaven, God says, you're, you're part of this bigger narrative. You're part of this bigger story, that every single one of you can be part of this amazing adventure. God help us to not reduce Christianity to ritualistic religion and strip it from the beauty of its adventure, how exciting it is. I'm not saying that it's not difficult, but in that difficult difficulty, you know that you are a part of something so much bigger than yourself. And I, I really do think that, that, you know, when we consider heaven and we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, we, we know we're a part of that, that God has invited us in, that God has given us spiritual gifts, that any son or daughter that's in his kingdom can be, be a vital part of what it is that God's ultimate plan is. What an extraordinary thing that is. I, I pray tonight that, you know, if you've kind of been in that spot where, you know, you've looked at your life and you've thought, man, what is, what really is this all about? I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels, like there's no purpose or value. I just go to work and I, I, I do what I do at work and I come home and I watch television and, you know, it's just this cycle and you're a believer in Jesus Christ. I would say, man, break the cycle, break the cycle, you know, fulfill the great commission. God has got this grand adventure that he's invited you to be a part of. And so I think, you know, when we think about heaven, when we are heavenly minded, um, it reminds us that we're part of this greater narrative that, that is authored by God. Uh, and then finally, you know, there's more thoughts to this, but and finally I would say that, that we can actually be that significant piece in bringing the kingdom of God to the hearts of men and women. I mean, I just want you to think about this. Not only has God invited you in, not only are you part of this greater narrative, but you are the very tool that God uses to bring his 
the, the message of the good news in an absolutely transforming way to the people around you. I mean, your life can be used by God to have an eternal impact on the people that God has divinely placed in your circle of influence. Man, that, that's amazing. You know, I, just, I don't, yeah, so, so, so I don't just go to work, right? I'm not just punching the clock or whatever. You got that technology on your phone where your employer knows when you've actually come onto property because you, you use the app, however it works. I'm not just putting in the time. No, God has been divinely, supernaturally, sovereignly working circumstances in my life and, and creating these divine opportunities like Brandon was talking about a couple of weeks ago, divine opportunities in my life, you know, sovereignly directed by God. And, and these people, God is doing a work and he, he's causing them to converge. I mean, I just want you to think about the probability of that. You know, all of these different events happening in people's lives with, in addition to their own decision-making process and their, their free will, and yet God reigns sovereignly and supremely above all of that, and he's able to orchestrate these moments where you can just simply share a message in love and a person's life can be changed forever. And then they can become part of this greater narrative, and they can see that God has a purpose and a plan for their life. And so as, as we read these verses in uh, Revelation about heaven, just, I just want you to keep that in mind. And um, don't just take this in as, as data, all right? Like, yeah, hey, le I learned a couple points about, you know, what, what heaven's going to be like. And don't get me wrong, you know, I'm, I'm one of the shepherds here, and I don't want you Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas people walking around lost, all right? Because that will be really embarrassing for me on that day. God will be like, hey, were these, did you not tell these people what, what this was going to be like? Uh, and so the day to peace is good, but I pray that you're encouraged. The Bible says, after all of that, after these things, after these things, I, it's a, that's a, an important phrase. We'll talk about what that could mean in just a minute. I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So the phrase meditata in the original language, after these things, um, is definitely significant. And it can mean a number of things. Uh, remember, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, we were given a divine outline for the book of Revelation. I mean, it's really the only book that, that gives us um, an inspired outline. And just three parts to that outline, you remember... It was write down the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will, will come, come to pass after these things. And so chapter one, he writes down the beauty of the revelation of the Son of God that he beheld. Chapters two and three, he writes down the, the letters that were dictated uh, by Christ uh, and delivered by the messenger, his angel, to these particular leaders in the, the church, seven letters. Uh, and now we've entered into this third and much larger section, this third category, if you will, um, of the outline, this divine outline that's been given to us. And we know that's the case because we're triggered to connect uh, the phrase after these things. After these things can mean after the dictation of these letters, right? There are seven letters that were given. They are for, for local churches in a real historical period. Uh, and so it's possible that it's possible that John, when he writes this, is just simply talking about uh, that, that local historical aspect. 
It's possible also, though, remember we talked about how these seven churches represent epochs of church history. And so it is possible, and there are many people who believe this, that when he says after these things, he's not just talking about the, the local historical events that were happening in these churches, but we're talking about the church age itself. <clears throat> now, this is dispensationalism, and I, you know, I'm not a strict dispensationalist, but I, I do believe there are dispensations or economies that God uses to work with humanity. Uh, and you know, it, it, the latter half of that goes like this. You have the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you have him breathing the spirit upon the disciples and that initiates the church age. God still is dealing with the nation of Israel, but from a national perspective, the promises that he gave them from a national perspective are on pause. And now the great mystery is, has been exposed, you know, and Paul was given great revelation concerning this mystery. And the mystery was that God had planned all along to bring the good news of Messiah all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to the non-Jewish nations. And so what we've seen over the course of the last 2,000 years is the fulfillment of that mystery. You know, it's not that God hasn't been working in the nation of Israel, but, but because he certainly has especially within the last 75 to 80 years. You know, we see the rebirth of the nation. But fundamentally, you know, the, the work of God has been focused on these non-Jewish nations and the gospel literally going to the ends of the earth. And there's go, going to come a time where that period of time ends. My particular position on this is once that period ends, the great tribulation period, a seven-year period, begins. And you can go read Daniel chapter 9 uh, because Daniel lays this out in the prophecy or in the vision that was given to him. Um, but in that seven-year period, God is going to reinstitute the, the, the national promises that he had to Israel. Of course, we know during that time there will be uh, the unmitigated outpouring of God's wrath. There will be the revelation of the Antichrist. He will come um, as a person of peace, he'll have great power to manipulate people. There will be a one world religious system, governmental system, economic system. Uh, there will be a, the false uh, prophet that will be doing signs and wonders. Of course, there's the unholy trinity where you have, and we'll talk about this in Revelation chapter 13, you have Satan, you have the Antichrist, and you have the false prophet. And then, of course, three and a half years into this seven-year tribulation period, he goes into the rebuilt temple. Uh, the temple will be rebuilt there on the Temple Mount. Uh, everything is in place for that to happen. All of the tools that are needed, the instruments of worship that are needed to re-engage uh, the Israelites in the worship of God are already made. They, of course, don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Some people believe that will be discovered. But they already have blueprints and plans for the building of the third temple. And some some. Some architects, you know, Israeli architects say that that could be constructed in as little as two to three months. So we know right in the middle of this tribulation period, you know, uh, he's going to go in, the Antichrist will go into the temple and he'll commit the abomination of desolation that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 24 and Daniel spoke of in Daniel chapter 9. He will declare himself to be God, he will demand that the Jews make sacrifices to him and then there will be an all-out exodus of Jews from Judea into somewhere in Edom. Most people believe it'll be the rock city of Petra. We don't necessarily know that for sure. I lean into that for specific reasons that I'll share with you later. 
And at the end of, I'm, I'm really kind of like, this is just a synopsis, right? There's a lot more to talk about, two witnesses and, you know, 144,000. But at the end of that three and a half year period, Christ is going to come back and establish the millennial kingdom, a literal 1,000 year period of time where he will set up his throne uh, and he will rule his potentate from Jerusalem and those of us who have chosen to follow him will rule and reign with him. So, so some people say, when all of that to say, some people say that when John says after these things, from a dispensational perspective, we're talking about after the church age, after the age of grace, right before the great tribulation period. Um, and, you know, as part of the evidence that they would bring to bear is that they would say that the word church has appeared so many times already in the book of Revelation, but it do actually doesn't appear again until Re Revelation chapter 22. <clears throat> that is not to say that there aren't born-again believers during the Great Tribulation period. We for sure know that's going to be the case with Israel. There'll, there'll be an amazing spiritual awakening. We know Gentiles will be saved as well, but all of those will be tribulation saints kind of set apart in a different category. I wanted to talk just a little bit tonight about the rapture of the church. Do you all know what the rapture of the church is? Raise your hand if you do. <clears throat> all right. Um, I wanted to find the rapture for you, and um, you know, I, th I think this is an adequate uh, definition. The rapture is the doctrine that teaches that before the second coming of Christ, Jesus will come secretly for his believers. They will all be caught up together with him, with the Lord in the air, is the way that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 puts it. The body of dead believers will be resurrected, and all believers living and dead will be glorified, specifically from the church age. Now, I want you to turn tonight to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, we're going to read that together, so I know I don't ask you a lot of times to turn, but tonight I want you to um, do the hard work, okay, put the labor in. I know it's, it's hard to turn in your Bible. Some of you can just swipe. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, 1 Corinthians, if you want to know the, the primary verses that we get the concept of the rapture from, because, you know, some people say, well, you know, the English word isn't even in the, in, in the scriptures. Well, neither is the word trinity, but we see, you know, we see the principle clearly throughout the Bible. Um, the rapture, of course, less than the trinity. I'm not saying that they're equal, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 52. Don't turn there tonight. And then some people also reference John chapter 14, verse 2. There are other people who reference Matthew chapter 24, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. You'll remember the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples when they were remarking about the temple, and he's like, hey, you know, don't put a lot of stock in this because there's not going to be one stone that rests upon another. And so they ask him what the signs of his coming will be. He lays that out. Um, some people view that as a message to all believers. My position on that personally from the context and from what he writes specifically about those believers is that we're talking about tribulation saints. We're like specifically talking about Jewish tribulation saints during the time of the great tribulation. So uh, I don't include Matthew chapter 24 into like a proof text for the rapture. The concept of the rapture is not without precedence, you know, and I'm not, 
I'm not necessarily, I'm for sure I'm not saying that they're the same thing, but being, being caught up, being snatched away, that's what the word rapture means, harpazo, rapturos. Uh, it means to be violently seized or taken. Uh, it can also mean to claim for oneself. We see that in the life of Enoch, right? I mean, Enoch was not. I mean, he was just walking with God, and then all of a sudden, he was gone. He just didn't stop existing. Um, God took him. We think about Elijah, of course, as Elijah was taken up uh, on that amazing day, and Elisha saw the chariots of fire. We think about Philip, who, you know, this is, you know, this is my own way of putting it, who had a horizontal rapture. I mean, you know, he was down in... Um, he was down in the desert ministering to the, at the Ethiopian eunuch, and then all of a sudden he's found in Azotus. How did that happen? Well, God can do that. And then the two witnesses, you know, the two witnesses are taken to be with God in heaven. So don't, you know, don't have the idea that the concept of the rapture is not present in Scripture. There is a lot of debate over when the rapture will happen. And, you know, predominantly four views, I would say, qualify people's perspectives. There is the pre-tribulational view of the rapture, which is exactly what it sounds like, that it's going to happen before the beginning of the great tribulation, that seven-year period of time. There is the mid-tribulation view, which is exactly what it sounds like, that three and a half years into the tribulation uh, is when the church is going to be raptured. There's reasons for that. I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. There's the pre-wrath view. Uh, that before the day of the Lord or the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, an undefined, undisclosed period of time in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, the church is going to be taken. Uh, and then, of course, there's the post-tribulation uh, perspective, you know, where those individuals would say that, uh, I'm going to explain this in a second, but they would say that the rapture and the second coming of Jesus happen simultaneously. I'm going to make a distinction tonight and focus really specifically on pre-trib, mid-trib, and pre-wrath. But like I said, the post-tribulationalists, and I know some really, really smart people who believe in a post-tribulation rapture of the church, and I don't think all of their arguments can be absolutely discounted. By the way, I don't think that the timing of the rapture is something that the church should divide over. It's not an absolute essential. It's not, you know, like um, the the... the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not, uh, you know, it's not on the same level as the doctrines of theology and things like that. I think there's freedom for us to have our own convictions and, of course, yes, to hold them strongly. But the post-tribulationalist believes that basically the rapture and the resurrection of God's people are fundamentally the same thing. Um, that that moment is not going to be a private or secret moment. It's going to be a public moment. It all happens in one single stage that when Jesus comes back in his second coming, those believers who are alive on the face of the earth, uh, as he comes back, will be simultaneously raptured up, or they would say, some of them, resurrected up to be with him, and then they will, as he comes, they will come with him. They do look at Matthew chapter 24 as really uh, representing all believers, not just uh, Jewish believers in Christ. Uh, and, you know, there are reasons for that, and there are deeper theological aspects of that. A lot of people who hold a post-tribulational uh, point of view are Reformed, and so some of them, not all of them, believe in this concept called replacement theology, where uh, the church, the modern church, has replaced 
national Israel that at the uh, rejection of Christ and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that the national promises for Israel came to an end. And so it really wouldn't even fit within their theology to have a seven-year period of time that is devoted specifically to God fulfilling His covenant promises with the nation of Israel. Um, what do we know about the rapture? Well, we know it's going to happen quickly. The Word itself declares that, right? I mean, it, to, to violently seize or to take, um, to claim for oneself. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So Paul is just saying, for there's going to be a generation of believers that don't experience physical death. And they're going to be radically transformed and changed, in fact, in the twinkling of an eye. Well, you say tonight, how long does it take my eye to twinkle? Well, let me tell you how long it takes your eye to twinkle, because I researched this. 300 milliseconds. 300 milliseconds. I, I don't know, maybe you own a... Maybe you own a Dodge Challenger, and it's got, it's got a Hemi, and you know, you're talking 600 horsepower. Man, you floor that thing, you know that your head whips back. That's nothing compared to the rapture, I'll tell you tonight. Maybe you have a Tesla, and you're able to do one, you know, uh, zero to 60 in 1.9 seconds. That is nothing compared to the rapture. Look, God's more fun than your car. That's all I'm saying tonight. God's more fun than your car. Like the rapture is going to be absolutely amazing, you know, I mean, and there's been, there's been all sorts of books that have popularized um, the rapture, and you know, sometimes to the extent where I think, uh, and from my point of view, it's minimized the beauty and the value of it, you know, you can, you can leverage fiction so much that it ends up counteracting the, you know, the beauty and the uh, significance of the Word of God. But, but sometimes, you know, the picture is this. Well, you know, it's just going to be so fast, your clothes are going to be left, right? I mean, cars will crash, helicopters will fall to the ground, but there will be your shoes. There'll be your shoes and your pants and your shirt because, you know, it's just going to happen so fast. And by the way, God doesn't want your clothes anyway because he's going to give you a resurrected body. <laughs> I know. Jeez. I'm not saying we're all going to be naked in heaven, all right? I just totally messed some of you up. What we do know is it's going to happen quickly, um, the second thing that we know from, you know, I believe what Scripture teaches, it will be distinguished from Christ's second coming. And, you know, John MacArthur, who is, uh, I, I, I like some of what John MacArthur does. I don't like all of what he does. His, his, you know, commentaries on the pastoral epistles are amazing. But even he said with respect to this, the only way to sort out the rapture of the church and the second coming is to put them in two stages, to divide the two. You really can't have them happening simultaneously. And so sometimes the way that you hear it said is this, the rapture is when Jesus comes for his people, and the second coming is when Jesus comes with his people. And there, there is a distinction. There is a distinction. I said that we would read Revelation, or the First Thessalonians 4.13, and it totally got sidetracked. So Revelation 4.13 says this. Did I read this? No. no. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So there were some people who are saying, hey, listen, you missed it, it already happened, and they were really bummed out. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So like God gave them this word, they absolutely knew it was incontrovertible. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now this is where the fundamental text for the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those saints who had believed but had already physically died. Then we who are, caught, who are alive and remain shall be caught up, that is harpazo, um, rapturos in, in Latin, this is English rapture, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, this great meeting in the sky, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then, like application, therefore comfort one another with, with these words. And so, you know, clearly that is distinct, it's different from the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he will come with his people, um, and there will be tribulation saints that are present on the face of the earth. The third thing I believe that uh, we need to consider is that the church, I, I believe that the church has promised to escape God's wrath. When I say God's wrath, I'm not talking about adversity or tribulation or persecution. And you know that the, the church throughout its history and the church today in various parts of the world is, has and is experiencing great difficulty and adversity. But you know, from a biblical point of view, you have to make a distinction between adversity, tribulation, and persecution and the wrath of God. They are not the same thing. And so when we're talking about this seven-year period of time, uh, and you know, I'll talk about this in a second, some people have a different view on how long the tribulation of God is poured out. When you talk about this period of time, we're not just talking about human adversity and difficulty. We're not talking about adversity that's, that's caused by Satan. We're not talking about adversity that's just caused by human foolishness. We're talking about about difficulty that's caused by the wrath of God, God's judgment, God's justice. In fact, we'll see in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, uh, during the outpouring of God's wrath, this is what's going to be said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, that itself is a very interesting picture. And so those who are experiencing this great adversity know exactly where it's coming from. They know that, in fact, it is the justice of God for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. You know, just kind of consolidating some of, you know, some aspects of his wrath. Fresh water, sea waters will be destroyed. There will be famine. There will be conflict. There will be cosmic disturbances. Vegetation is going to be struck. There is going to be de demonic locusts that attack human beings. Four angels uh, going across the face of the earth, killing a third of mankind. There will be loathsome sores. Humanity will be scorched. There will be darkness and pain. And in total, a half of the world's population will be completely wiped out. And we're, like I said, we're talking about the wrath of God, the justice of God. And so I would say to you, remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, where God says for, for, or the Bible says, for God did not appoint us, notice that personal plural pronoun, who is the us, the us is the church, the people of God, for God did not appoint us to wrath. 
And my view is he's not just talking about eternal wrath. We're, we're not just talking about eternal condemnation. <coughs> Excuse me. We're talking, about, we're talking about a demonstration of God's justice that is so great is to the extent of being able to be called his wrath. In fact, you remember in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus was speaking to the church that overcomes, and he said, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation that will come upon the whole world. The fourth and final thing tonight is this. I do think that the, the um, putting the rapture in a place where it protects us from the wrath of God is consistent with the character of God throughout the scriptures. You remember that God made his distinction in the family of Noah because Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of God. And then in addition to that, Lot and his family were in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember, Abraham starts to barter with God. Well, what, what if there's 50? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 10? And it's not as if he was cajoling God into conceding to be merciful. That whole thing is about God teaching Abraham his mercy. But fundamentally, what Abraham bases his negotiation on is this statement. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he always does what is right. So what really is the difference in the pre-tribulational, the mid-tribulational, and the pre-wrath perspectives? It all really is, is... oriented around when the wrath of God begins. Does the wrath of God, is it a set, literally a seven-year period of time? Like once that domino falls, is it, you know, consecutive outpourings of, of God's wrath? Um, is it that there are three and a half years of the Antichrist uh, establishing and creating peace, and then and there, there is no wrath of God? that he is, in a sense, rescuing the world from, and then three and a half years, he goes into it, he goes into the, the temple, uh, and then that's when the wrath of God ensues, so just that final three and a half year period. Um, is it that indefinite moment when it will be the day of the Lord or the, the time of Jacob's trouble? Uh, so that's the pre-wrath perspective. And there are a variety of views on this, you know, and I, like I said, I think that there's space to, to disagree, my view has been that once the tribulation period starts, um, we, we are going to see the seal judgments, the bold, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bold judgments poured out in a consecutive manner. Now, those who are mid-tribulational or pre-wrath don't really see it chronologically. They see all of that happening simultaneously in a shorter period of time. In addition to that, we differ on the timing of the revelation of the Antichrist. You know that the Antichrist is going to be revealed after the church is taken away. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 says this, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming." There are some people who say, well, you know, the he that's being spoken about in Second Thessalonians is the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit is taken away, that's when the Antichrist 
uh, will reveal himself. And the problem I've always had with that is how can you take the omnipresent Holy Spirit away from the face of planet Earth? Like, how would people ever respond to the gospel? There's going to be this great work of God's Spirit among the, the Jews and Gentiles, but you know it takes the work of the Spirit to be convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So I would say, with respect to this portion of Scripture, that the he is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. That in fact the church, and you know this as you study the gospel accounts in particular, that the church is like a preserving agent. In fact, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And he wasn't just talking about bringing flavor to food. He's talking about uh, having a preserving quality. The presence of believers in the city of Las Vegas is a preserving factor for the unbelieving individuals. What is one reason why God has chosen not to execute his justice on our city? Well, I'll tell you one reason, because he's got the church militant present, because we're present. You know, we're about his business. We're sharing the gospel. And then the other area of disagreement is this, is the tribulation at all related to God's national promises to Israel? And there are a lot of people, you know, the post-tribulation view does, does have the abundance of history on its side. Um, but I would say, you know, it was convenient not to consider national promises for Israel when, when you're looking at Israel during the era of the diaspora, which happened from 70 AD, uh, 135 AD was like really the fulfillment of the diaspora, um, all the way to May 14th, 1948, when Israel was the Jews, the Jewish people were given a homeland again, and they were able to come back into the land and fulfill the covenant promises of God that are mentioned in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the book of Isaiah and through all, throughout all the minor prophets. And so I'm just saying that it would have been easy to discard Israel and think, well, God clearly is done because there is no nation any longer. But I think that the repatriation of the land by Israel was a total wake-up call to theologians, you know, where it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe there is something to this. Maybe God's not done. And I'll tell you, I said that, I've said this so many times, I hesitate to say it again. People say all the time, I want to see a miracle pastor. And I say, well, look at the nation of Israel because there it is for you. When we think about the rapture, remember, and this is one argument against, it's, it's not a good argument, but... One argument against uh, pre-tribulational uh, perspective on the rapture is it creates this attitude of escapism for, for Christians. I won't say that this is like not altogether without fact or truth because there are some Christians who are like, well, I'm going to get raptured anyway. I'm just going to get raptured anyway. So what does it matter? Let the world go to hell. You know, God's got me covered. God's got me covered. I'll just, I'll just run up my credit cards and make really bad decisions, and, and then I'll get raptured, and I won't have to worry about it. And of course, that is an absurd attitude to have. And it is, in fact, the antithesis of what the rapture should produce in our hearts. In fact, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says that if we have in our hearts the anticipation of Jesus Christ, His coming, it is a purifying factor. Look, I can't think of anything more, more purifying than knowing that at any moment we could stand before our Savior. Like, if you want a thought that will keep your decisions and your attitude in line, I think that will do it. Hey, am I really going to go home and, you know, surf the internet and go to places that I don't, I, I really shouldn't be going to? Am I really going to go to that, you know, theater and, and sit in a seat and, and watch a movie that God wouldn't want me watching? 
Am I really going to have this attitude of unforgiveness? Am I going to really bear these these, uh, grudges against these individuals? All along knowing that the second come or the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. No, I think, in fact, it's a purifying concept. It blesses us with hope, it brings us comfort, it calms a troubled heart, it purifies our lives, and it gives us an anticipation for the great things that God is doing, which provides for us energy, not lethargy, concerning the things of the kingdom. I want you to note here, just finally, that the door is open, right? I mean, as he's given this great vision, as it were, um, you know, John doesn't get to a door that's closed. And I think that the beauty of this phrase, as God invites him to come up, and as he sees a door standing open, is this, heaven's open for business, Heaven is open for business. God beckons all who will to come. So what does he see? (laughs) I didn't even get as far as I was planning on getting. That's one verse. Um, What does he see when he gets there? Well, the Bible says in verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. One, Not, not two, not you and God right? I mean, you're, you're, not, you're, you're not in that position of authority and power. The first thing that he sees as he comes through this open door, as it were, is the very throne of God. What a beautiful metaphysical experience he has, like Isaiah and like Ezekiel. The throne is set, right? The description here is the throne of God is planted. It is immovable. The sovereign purposes of God are unshakable, God's throne is never unstable. God is never in a position where he's not necessarily sure if what he's intended is actually going to come to pass. There is one established ruler. God will never get knocked off his throne. You should say amen to that tonight. And it's not as if someone didn't try, right? I mean, Lucifer tried and he drew a third of the angels with him. And I'll tell you right now, he was no match for the almighty God. There is one throne in heaven, and I think, I think for sure in the context of the church at the time, this was so encouraging because everyone was just simply talking about the throne of Caesar and the power of Caesar and, you know, the, the, the potency of Caesar, this great world leader that could do absolutely whatever they wanted to do to the extent where they even considered Caesar to be God. And then, you know, people were required to go into a temple dedicated to Caesar and offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And I I have no doubt that believers in this time, in this context, were like, there is a throne and it's not Caesar's throne. There is a king who is greater than all of these earthly rulers that subject us so consistently to things that you know, are difficult or create adversity in our lives. I think when John is talking about the throne that's set in heaven, he's talking about the glory and the sovereignty of God. You know, the throne's not empty. There's one who sits on the throne and he rules in a place of power and peace. I think that, you know, I, I just wonder for John as he's seeing this and as he's writing this down, if, if you know he was overwhelmed, you know, we're going to see that John uses all of the tools that he has in the toolkit to convey things that are absolutely beyond our capacity to understand, and yet he does his best, and I think that in just focusing on, you know, when you get to heaven, the first thing that you'll be focused on will not be the angels. 
and the angels we'll see are absolutely extraordinary. It's not going to be the, the 12 foundational layers to the New Jerusalem. You know, it's not going to be the songs that are sung by uh, resurrected saints. We for sure will talk about all of that. But you know, when you step into a room, your eyes immediately focus like a laser on that which matters most. And this is exactly what he does. His eyes are centered and focused on God. You know that God is the center of heaven. Of all of the amazing things we will experience, the most amazing thing is God himself. And in fact, in these verses, we're, we're, just, we're not going to get to all of it, um, but in these verses, we see the triune Godhead. We see the Father sitting on the throne. We see the seven spirits of God before the throne of God, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, three couplets plus another statement about the Spirit of God. We will see in Revelation chapter 5, one as of a lamb come and take the scroll out of the hand of the Father because he's the only one who is worthy to do it. The, the, the center and the focal point of heaven is the triune Godhead. And listen, don't wait until you get to heaven to live out the reality of heaven because you can have a, a slice of heaven right now and you can have a slice of heaven by living in a way where the triune Godhead is at the center of your life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are many amazing and mighty things about the, God, about the life that God has blessed you with. The greatest of all of those things is Him. And I pray tonight that we would have a heart that desires to have more of Him. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for uh, these two verses. <laughs> there's, it's just, there's so much. There's so much beauty and it's just extraordinary, God, and it's worth our meditation. It's worth going home tonight and not turning on the remainder of the football game, uh, not checking out the basketball sco scores, not surfing the news, pausing from our social media, and just taking some time and really drinking in God, to drink in how extraordinary heaven is. That there is a, a door that is open. That there is a voice that says, come. And that truly, God, you beckon people to come to yourself. Father, it's amazing, this um, beautiful uh, grand narrative that we're a part of. And our lives, I'm sure, have so much more meaning than we can even perceive ourselves. I pray that as we've considered these things that our hearts would be lifted up and encouraged. God, that there would be a deep gratitude within us for having been invited, being able to be a part. God, to know that we're not just spectators, but uh, we're in the game, that heaven is open for business, that you invite the lost to come and you want to use us, God, that the moment that we're living in right now is in fact ordained by you and that there's nothing inconsequential in our daily routine if we would just see it. God, if we would just have eyes and a heart to get after it. Lord, that we would have the boldness knowing that 
that every day that we live may be uh, the moment, it may be the moment that you come back for us. And we desire that greatly, but we also want to use every minute that you give as not just an expression of your goodness and grace, but as an opportunity to share the good news with the lost around us. May heaven be a motivation for us, not just a destination. May our hearts burn with a holy fire. God, may there be a renewing work of your spirit. God, if there's been any tool of the adversary fashioned against us, fashioned against your divine purposes within our lives. God, we pray tonight that by an act of love and grace that you would break those adversaries' tools and that you would help us to walk in the power of your spirit. Tonight, just as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I, it would, I would be so remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, to respond to the call to come, to be able to be a participant in this great story that God himself is writing, for you to receive the gift of everlasting life. I don't know what's brought you here tonight. I don't know the circumstances. I know the one who's behind the circumstances. I know the one who's been shake, shaping things in your life to compel you to be here in this moment. And he has not done that just for you to feel good about yourself, to feel like, you know, you went to church and, and so you did a religious thing and somehow that's brought a little moment of meaning to your life. No, that's not it. That is not it. He loves you and he wants your heart and you're fearfully and wonderfully made and you're beautiful in the eyes of God. And he wants you to experience the profound power of his forgiveness. He wants you to have a new beginning. He wants to bring great transformation and change in your life. He wants to bring you into this grand adventure that transcends time itself and is so beautiful. Even the angels look into these glorious things that God is doing. Will you come tonight? Will you respond to that message? Will you step through the open door? Will you trust in Jesus? You can come just as you are with, your, with all the mess, and you know what I'm talking about, with all the sin. And what he'll do tonight is he'll receive you just as you are. And so this evening, if this is you, you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, now is the time, today is the day. This is your moment. This is your moment to become a child of God and to be born again by the power of God's Spirit. I want to pray for you tonight, and I'm just going to ask you if God is speaking to you and you would say, Pastor, that's me. Derek, that's me. I want God in my life. I want everything that you've been speaking about tonight. I want the promise, the assurance of everlasting life. I want to experience God now. Right where you're sitting, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you tonight. Just stretch your hand up high. Awesome. Thank you here in the center for raising your hand. It's amazing. Anybody else? I see your hand as well. And he loves you. He loves you. He knows your name. Raise your hand. Be bold today. God bless you. Thank you so much. I see your hand. More importantly, God sees your heart. 
put your hands down tonight if you're a Christian and, and you know it's you, you've kind of slunked, I don't even know if that's a word, but you've slunked back into a hole of living a life without value or purpose and you've questioned, you've just been questioning. And tonight God wants you to, he wants you to step out of that. He wants you to step out of that darkness and that confusion and that discouragement into his marvelous light. He wants you to take up and to possess all of the amazing things, the promises that he has possessed you for. And so Christian, tonight, if, if that's you and you just need that reviving work of God's spirit in your heart so that there's a holy fire within your life again, and the moments that God grants to you are used for his holy purposes, that there's a, a new work that he would do tonight and that there would be an anticipation in your heart for the, the coming of Christ, his son, for his people. Tonight, if this is you, Christian, I want to pray for you. Would you raise your hand? Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you on my left in the center. So good. You can put your hands down. Father, thank you tonight, God. We're just grateful these lives mean so much to you and God they mean so much to us we pray tonight that you would bless them with the strength to take this step of faith towards you knowing that God you fully and will completely meet them tonight right where you're sitting I want to lead you in a very simple prayer maybe you're giving your life to Christ for the very first time and maybe you're in a sense rededicating your life tonight as a Christian just want to encourage you to follow me in prayer tonight. Make this your prayer to God and believe that as you pray, he's going to hear you this evening. You can pray with me tonight. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your invitation to come. And tonight I come. I come to Jesus, your son believing that he died for me, that he was victoriously resurrected, and that through faith in him, I belong to you as your child. I have the absolute assurance of everlasting life, and through you, I have purpose, meaning, and value in this life. Fill me, I pray, with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's all stand together tonight. For those of you who responded in prayer to God, for those of you who prayed for the very first time to receive Christ, welcome to God's family. We can say that with assurance. For those of you who are rededicating your life, we're so thankful for all that God is doing in your life. Listen, as uh, Miriam and Pastor Tony lead us in worship, Pastor Brandon and some of our follow-up team, is going to be right up here in the front. And if you raise your hand during this time of worship, we want you to come forward tonight. Don't be afraid. Absolutely, for sure, do not be ashamed. 
Um, consider the value of this moment and just this simple step of faith where you can come and you can be prayed for. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. Um, if, if you are unfamiliar with the community of God's people, we want to fill you in on that too. And so absolutely, without exception, if you raise your hand tonight, just begin to make your way down and find one of our follow-up leaders and give us the opportunity to pray for you. Have a great week.